Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Please stand and open up to Luke chapter 22. I will be reading verses 39 to 46. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And he, Jesus, came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to disciples, found them sleeping from sorrow. And said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation." This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So Jesus, now following the Last Supper with his disciples in that upper room, goes out and goes to a very familiar place, to the Mount of Olives. And this mount, more of a, of a hill in our estimation, if you know the elevations around Jerusalem, it lies on the east side of, of the town, east side of Jerusalem. And from this mount, the temple, the center of the city, would have been quite visible, would have stood, stood before them. And this was the familiar meeting place for Jesus and his followers. It is um, to that mount that after the intensity of that upper upper room meal, um, Jesus goes. It's the place where, where he would pour himself out in prayer to his father. And the place also where Judas would betray him with a kiss. So Judas had met many times here with Jesus. And Jesus, knowing that, proceeds to this very spot. He knows that Judas knows this place, right? And so he knew in going to the Mount of Olives that Judas would lead those enemies of Christ right to him. In John's gospel, we read this. Now, Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. That in no way hinders Jesus Right from going to that place, his, the time is at hand. His sacrifice at the hands of wicked men is about to take place. And he goes there. In Luke's account of this very intense time, we read of three things. Jesus 
telling his disciples to pray and to pray for a, a particular purpose. And then Jesus' agonizing prayer to his father. And then Jesus reiterating that prayer as he comes back to the, the apostles and, and reiterating that prayer, that command to pray. Have you... So, so we begin with that command that Jesus gives to the apostles. He has brought his men along with him to this garden on the mount. He knows that the time is ripe for his arrest given uh, his following prayer. We know that the intensity of the work of the following day is, is weighing down upon him. And, and to those men along with him at this time, he gives them a very clear, simple directive, a command. Pray. Pray. Have you ever been talking to someone or, or said this yourself? All I can do now is pray. All I can do now is pray. Pray. Right? You've been witnessing to a friend, you've taken them to church, you've talked time and time again with them, you've bought them books, you have led them through Bible studies, and after years of pursuing that friend, they reject it all and instead find that, that Zen Buddhism is more their thing. And you tell your Christian friends, well, all I can do now is pray. All I can do now is prayer. I've said such things. I've heard such things said very often. And in saying them, what we are often betraying is this view. I have given all my effort to no effect. And now this situation is going to take God's effort. I have, I've, I've done what I can. God, I, I lay it to your charge now. You, you take this from here. I mean, that's the in a sense, that's the reason that I've said those things, right? But, but the fact of the matter is, is this. Prayer should, should always have been primary. It should have been the main thing all along, right? It, it, prayer should have preceded every one of those activities of witnessing to that friend, right, and pursuing his conversion, right? So everything in our lives should begin with, it should be sustained by, and it should finish with prayer. That's what we should constantly be doing because in prayer, what are we doing? In prayer, we're acknowledging that it is God's work all along. In prayer, we are acknowledging that God has power and we do not have power. That we are impotent. We pray because we know that God is sovereign and directs the affairs of even the hairs of a man's head. Right? And so prayer is not something that we come to when all else has failed. Prayer is to be the constant state so that when everything fails, we know it is, in fact, not failure but God's sovereign will. Thomas Watson says this about prayer. A godly man will as soon live without food as without prayer. A godly man will as soon live without food as without prayer. As constant as we come back to food. Think of the constancy of our devotion to food. 
right? Three meals a day and all kinds of snacks in between those meals, not to mention the beverages, right? As constant as we come back to food, so we should continuously come back to prayer. We eat without ceasing. We eat without ceasing, but we do not do as the Holy Spirit tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, which is to pray without ceasing. Prayer is to be the first thing, not the last thing. Prayer is to be the anointing that we bring along for all the things that we give the strength of our bodies to. Right? Prayer is to be our first vocation, our first calling. It is to be that which encourages us to continue working for the Lord and for his kingdom when we're tired, right? When we're fatigued, when we, we are tempted to say, okay, I've done what I can, God, now you, you act. Jesus tells his men to pray. He tells his men to pray. And it's not a throwaway request. He has given them an example of prayerfulness. And now as the forces of wickedness gather against the Son of God, prayer is necessary. Prayer is needed. And so remember, these are hard days for Jesus. These are hard days for Jesus. These are hard days for the apostles. These are no ordinary days and no ordinary events. Jesus is about to face the wrath of the people the wrath of the the Sanhedrin, the wrath of the Romans and the nations. And he's about to face the wrath of his father and be crucified and die. And he goes to prayer. If prayer is to be without ceasing, it, it goes without saying that prayer must be made when? During the hard times. During the troubling times, our gracious Father in heaven has told us that we should especially cry out to him in times of trouble. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you. That's Jesus' prayer in this passage. And in the book of James, you remember what is written there. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Pray. When troubling times are upon you, failures of businesses, losses of friends, persecution, illness, confrontations in relationships, special needs, children, pregnancy, a move across the country, then what is the order of the day? It's prayer. And though the trouble be small or be be Intense. The order of the day is the same. Prayer. Ryle says, in trouble, the first friend we should turn to should be God. And so now in the context of trouble, I mean, think of that. Now in the context of trouble, what is it that Jesus tells them in particular to be praying for or about? He tells them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Troubling times are what? They're tempting times. Troubling times are the times when our faith is tried. Pressure proves that when pressure comes to bear upon us, 
It proves what we truly believe in our heart of hearts about God and his sovereign providential love. You, you say you trust God. You say you trust God. The way you reacted when you received that diagnosis betrays otherwise. Actually, it's more like this. The way you handled that flat tire betrays otherwise, right? It does not take much of a trial for us to enter into the temptation of despairing of or wrecking those around us or fretting and getting angry. Jesus knows the disciples are going to face intense trials in the coming days as those authorities are going to go after Jesus, so they're going to go after the apostles after Jesus is gone. Right? And Jesus, knowing this and loving them, tells them to pray that God would grant to them what they need, the faith they require in order to overcome the intensity of temptation that's coming up. The hope is that when the assault of temptation comes, that they or we might not enter into it. Which means to sin in the manner of that temptation. Right? To enter into temptation means to, to sin in the manner of that temptation. And this is what Jesus taught his disciples elsewhere on a different mount, right at the beginning of his time with them. He said, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And he told them to pray that. Pray that. What temptations will these apostles, will these men face? To deny they know Jesus. To forsake the work that Jesus has commissioned them to do after he goes away. To run and hide. To make friends with the enemies of God so that they can avoid all the persecutions that are coming along. Right? And perhaps the greatest temptation of all would be this. To doubt the power of God when they see Jesus dying. To join their voices to, their, to the mockers at the cross. Who said he saved others, he can't save himself. And in the face of such temptations, Jesus says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Do you pray in such a manner? Do you pray this prayer? Do, we, do you face temptations? Do you face temptations to deny the very word of God? Are those flaming ears of the evil one still directed toward us? Are there some who reject a good conscience and suffer shipwreck in regard to their faith like Hymenaeus and Alexander? They entered into temptation. Are there dangers in our hearts, in our minds, dangers outside of us that that we have to, to say to God, deliver me from this. Of course, for all of us, that, that is the case. So pray this way. Pray that you might not enter into temptation. Seems like that's an early morning prayer, right? That's the prayer that you get to right as your feet hit the ground when you're rolling out of bed. 
Because that's when the temptations begin to come. If you do not pray this way, you and I will be led on by various impulses. You will come to oppose what is written in God's word. And all that is left at that point is the mercy of God in granting to you repentance in Jesus Christ. The apostles don't do it, do they? The apostles do not do as Jesus asked, but jumping down in the passage, we see they they fell asleep. Why were they sleeping? Because they were depressed. Right? They were sleeping from sorrow. They were depressed. They, they were weighed down. They were tired. They were, they were done with these troubling days. They wanted to close their eyes and forget about some things. And so they sleep instead of praying. And, and we know that the, the intensity of this time. And so they're asleep at the wheel. Right? Things are chugging around them and they're sleeping. And, and sleep is such a temptation, isn't it? Is sleep a temptation for you? There is almost no sensation more difficult to overcome than sleepiness. It's true. It hits us at the most awkward of times. How more awkward can it get for, the, for anyone than, than the apostles in this moment? They sleep while Jesus sweats blood in prayer. Right While he's doing what they asked, they sleep. They sleep after being told to pray by Jesus himself. They sleep moments before Jesus is arrested and led away. This is the last time they would be close to him. They sleep and enter into temptation. Jesus told them to pray. They did not. And he wakes them up and gives them the same exact exhortation he gave to them that he gave them before. Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And even while he says that, who shows up? Judas. With the Roman cohort. To take Jesus away. And the denials begin. And the fleeing away from Jesus begins. Now, we come to what, we come to focus now from the apostles onto Jesus. And I, I was talking to Dr. Halla early this week, and, and there, there are passages you come to, and you say, you say, who am I to preach such a passage as this? Who am I to give a, a, an understanding and the meaning of this prayer of Jesus, right? And, and, and what we have here is, is those few times in Scripture when we enter into inter-Trinitarian dialogue, right? And, and like John 17, that prayer, like, um, like this. And so there are a few times when, when we... We're let into this, and we see Jesus praying. It happens one time earlier in Luke, and I'm, I'm forgetting the passage. I was trying to remember it. But, but he, so, 
So I give you, nonetheless, it's written in Scripture for a purpose. It was prayed so that it might be heard, so that it might be written down, so that we might meditate on it through the ages and be taught from it. Right? And so we spend time on this, but we spend time on it with, with humility. Jesus goes, I like what it says here about a stone's throw away from those slumbering disciples. Jesus prays in a way that is mind-boggling, it's mysterious, it's intense. It's a prayer that's not just, um, it's not just words, but it's accompanied with agony in his body. The sweating of blood. Ryle says of this whole passage, it is a passage of Scripture which we should always approach with particular reverence. The history which it records is one of the deep things of God. And the deep things of God require us to approach them with humility. The difficulty with this passage is this. Is Jesus attempting to duck out? Is he attempting here to duck out of the work of redemption? He prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. What's the cup? The cup of the wrath of God? Yet not my will, but yours be done. What would motivate that prayer other than a desire within the Son of God not to do what the Father has required of him? Yet certainly, if there is anything we can say about this passage, it is that the Son of God is most certainly not desiring to do something contrary to the will of his Father. His prayer is contingent on the willingness of his Father. Right? If you are willing. It's an acknowledgement of the will of his Father. And in his prayer, he submits his will to the will of his Father. Yet not my will, but yours be done. So twice he, I mean, how do we speak of such mysteries? I mean, twice he resigns himself to the will of God, to the will of his Father, or twice he defers to the will of the Father, or, or he submits to the will of the Father, or he affirms the will of his Father. I mean, he, twice he does this. I mean, how do we speak of this? Well, I'll stand on the shoulders of others who looked into these mysteries. Calvin first rejects what others have said about these words of Jesus, that it was not a prayer, it was just, or that it, he says it was not a prayer, it was just a complaint. That's one way, I suppose, to get around. He's not asking for something, he's just complaining. It's a, it's a way of explaining the difficulty of Jesus' request. They say it, it simply was no request at all, just a complaint. And Calvin rejects that. And then he goes on to ask how it is that Jesus could ask for the decrees of God to be revoked. He affirms that the eternal decrees of the Father cannot be changed. And if we were to assume the opposite, we would be uh, making liable to change. And a speaker of falsehoods, the God who wrote his word. In other words, the foundations would crumble. Then he explains Jesus' prayer this way. This prayer is Jesus submitting his human desires to his Father. Even in submitting before God an impossible request, 
this request is the only way to truly submit before his father those intense desires. He, re- he says it this way, there would be no absurdity in supposing that Christ, agreeable to the custom of the godly, leaving out of view the divine purpose, committed to the bosom of the father his desires, which troubled him. For believers in pouring out their prayers do not always ascend to the contemplation of the secrets of God or deliberately inquire what is possible to be done, but are sometimes carried away hastily by the earnestness of their wishes. Thus Moses prays that he would be blotted out of the book of life. And thus Paul wished to be made anathema, Romans 9. This, therefore, was not a premeditated prayer of Christ, but the strength and violence of grief suddenly drew this word from his mouth, to which he immediately added a correction. Not my will, but yours be done. And so, if we take what Calvin is saying, Jesus is doing in this prayer what he has asked the apostles to be doing, just immediately preceding that. This is a time of trouble, and he is, by faith, by submission to the will of his Father, praying not to enter into temptation. Right? This is why the intense expression of grief and fear, accompanied by bodily anguish, is still on his tongue. And and when, when he concludes, yet not my will, but yours be done. Temptations are before Jesus And he submits to the will of God even while expressing something of the desires that produce his anguish of mind and body. He is about to become sin and bear the unmitigated, the the unfiltered wrath of his father. His loving father was about to so love the world that he wouldn't spare his son. Right? And the son through the impossibility of his request, expresses something of his anguish, something of the height of his fight against temptation. This is, so to speak, as bad as it gets for Jesus. And it, in the end, shows forth his perfect submissiveness to the Father. There is no better expression of the obedience of Jesus Christ to the will of his Father than this one, given the intensity of the setting. As an application of this, Ryle says a Christian should carefully qualify every petition for the removal of crosses with the saving clause, if you are willing. Right? He should... He should wind up all with the meek confession, not my will, but thine be done. And so he goes on to say that every Christian, when a bitter cup is before them, should pray like this. When the bitter cups come along, we should pray like this. It is an acknowledgement of our own anguish and suffering, but one that is what? Submitted to the decrees of God. It's an acknowledgement of anguish. It's a pouring ourselves out before the Lord, but it is also a perfect confession of submission to the will of the Father. And that the decrees of God are what? Always good. 
It is the requesting for the removal of something heavy, but it, but it should be, but should it be the will of God that that heavy weight remain or even get heavier? It is a willing acknowledgement and acceptance of the fact that God knows better and that God's decrees are all good. It's a pagan worldview, one which does not acknowledge a God who decrees anything, right, that can, cannot see any good in suffering. Christians throughout the ages looking to the amazing fruit here, that redemption of mankind from sin, that counteracting of Adam's death-producing sin that was produced by suffering, the anguish and agony of Jesus Christ suffering in the garden and dying on the tree, we look to that and we see there is amazing fruitfulness, right? That comes from suffering. Out of death, life. In the first garden, life, sin, then death. In this garden, death, sin, and then life. Jesus says it this way, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Think about that. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. We must follow him into that garden. Right? We, may, we must follow him into and follow in that suffering. The, ser- the servant is not above his master. In this garden, Jesus, in a sense, begins to die. His, his blood is being shed. His blood is beginning to be shed even in his sweat. The seed is going to be buried so that it will bear much fruit, and it is bitter to him. And he expressed such bitterness to his father, yet, yet he obeys. And not just lip service obedience, which is not really obedience, but obedience to the point of death. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The slave is not above his master. You will have your crosses to bear. You are bearing crosses now. Right? And the most fruitful parts of your existence will be when you acknowledge that those crosses are good, that they came from God himself, and that he desires to produce something from them. Submitting to the will of God will inevitably be fruitful. Submitting to the will of God will inevitably be fruitful, but that fruit will spring up out of death and out of dying and out of suffering and out of groaning, out of crying, out of anguish. And all those things in prayer. Joe Bailey used to say he never knew the love of God so deeply as on the days when he laid one of his children in the ground in death. That's picking up on this. Did he weep? Was he anguished? Yes. Did he know the love of God and submit to the will of God? Yes. 
So let me help you understand the consequences of not accepting adversity as being from the hand of God for you good. If you will not accept adversity from the hand of God as being for your good, you will live a pagan life. And so far as things are going well, you will praise God. When they go poorly, you will begin to question God and his goodness. You will begin to to think things like, why me? And bitterness will begin to take root and your bitterness will begin to defile others. Your life will become a series of disappointments with God. Think of that. Why did you give me the parents you gave to me? Why do I not have this or that job or this or that relationship? Why do I have this or that disease? Why, do, why would he do that? And you will not pray with the kind of faith Jesus demonstrated, not my will but yours be done. You will begin to make demands of God, my will better than your will, God. And you know what, will, what in the end will happen. The book of your perceptions, the book of your feelings, will become your infallible rule. You will leave off praying, and certainly leave off praying in such a way that the goal is submission to the will of God and proclaiming that all he does is good. So this is why, brothers and sisters, in the midst of life's shocking blows, those calls we get out of the blue about the sudden death of somebody, the consequences of our sin coming out into the open, the cataclysmic events of of houses being swept away in a flood, right? This is why we must be able to have as our first thought when those things happen. That God, your will is good. I accept it. Now hear me as I pour out my anguish before you. Hear me as I throw my pain up at you. Don't, and so don't, don't hear what I'm not saying in this. I'm not saying that as it's faithless or pagan to cry out to God like Job did. I think his crying out to God was born of faith. But his first cry was what? After he lost his family, after he lost his livelihood, after he lost everything, was this. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. There the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. To summarize, it's all good. His governing prayer, his governing prayer, his first prayer, like that of Jesus here in our passage before his bitter death, was God is good and all that he does is good. And so out of that fundamental truth, that Romans 8.28 truth, come all of our expressions of anguish and prayer. But leave off that governing faith. Leave off that governing prayer. Leave off Romans 8.28 in your faith. And your prayers will become faithless demands. They will all boil down to not your will, but my will. And when God does not give you what you require, you will throw him off 
and move on to what you consider to be greener pastures. That will be the tenor of your life. And may God, our Father, guard us from such an end. And may we pray in such a way that we may not enter into temptation. I close with the book of Hebrews, which describes Jesus' prayers. There's a passage in Hebrews that talks about Jesus' prayers. And it says, In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. So the obedience, the suffering, the the piety, the reverence, the tears, the loud crying of the Son of God were heard by his Father. And because of them, you are saved. What glorious fruitfulness from understanding suffering. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We thank you for the faith, the power, the reverence, the piety, the obedience of Jesus, your son. We thank you for this example of prayer. I pray that we would approach all that occurs in our life, all that comes up next, by first praising you, blessed be the name of the Lord. And then, Father, presenting every fear, every difficulty, every question to you in anticipation that you will answer us. Father, I pray that we would do this for the glory, the name of your son, Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen.